Fat folk don't go and see their doctor when they need to. And, you know, I don't need to explain why that is a concern. That is a concern. It means that diagnoses are missed. Diagnoses are made late. And it absolutely contributes to stress, mental health, physical health and health inequity in an already marginalised group of people. Can I have another snack? Hey, and welcome to the Can I Have Another Snack podcast, where we talk all about appetite, bodies, and identity, especially through the lens of parenting. I'm Laura Thomas. I'm an anti-diet registered nutritionist, and I also write the Can I Have Another Snack newsletter. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Molly Moffat. Molly is a GP with a special interest in learning disability and autism. She practices medicine from a weight-inclusive, neurodiversity-affirming lens, celebrating both diversity of bodies and of minds. She's neurodivergent herself and has three children. In this episode, Molly and I are talking about how she moved away from recommending diets and weight loss to her patients towards an anti-diet, weight-inclusive approach focused on treating individuals with care and compassion. We get into what exactly medical anti-fat bias is and why it's so harmful, and she has some really lovely suggestions for how to talk to patients who come in with the idea that they have to lose weight for medical reasons. I really love talking to Molly and I think you're going to enjoy this episode. But before we get to today's conversation, I want to tell you real quick about the benefits of becoming a paid subscriber to the Can I Have Another Snack newsletter and community. Now, I know we're not used to having to pay for content on the internet and why would you pay for something where 85% of the content is free anyway? Well, because without paying supporters, this work just wouldn't be possible. None of the newsletter, not the podcast. As well as supporting me in the time it takes to research, interview contributors and write articles, your support goes towards paying guests for their time and their labour, as well as a podcast and a newsletter editor. So it's a whole team effort. You also help me keep the space ad and sponsor free so I don't have to sell out to advertisers or exploit my kid for freebies. Plus, keeping the community closed to paying subscribers only means that we keep the trolls and the fat phobes out. I recently asked the CHAS community why they support the newsletter, and this is what one reader had to say. I'm a mum of one fairly adventurous, self-proclaimed vegetarian and one theoretical omnivore. The latter survives almost exclusively on added sugar and butter, but mostly sugar. I consumed all the picky eating advice, some of it really well-meaning and pretty mellow, but by seven years in, I was more frustrated, confused, and full of self-doubt than ever. Enter CHAS. The no-nonsense, cut-through-the-bullshit, science-backed content is exceptional. The content about sugar is especially helpful to me, and the anti-diet lens is an antidote to my extremely anti-fat-slash-diet culture conditioning. And as an American, the British references are just an added bonus. To say your work is actively changing my life is not an understatement. Thank you. Well, thank you to the reader who sent that really lovely review. Becoming a paid subscriber is a fiver a month or £50 for the year, and you get loads of cool perks, as well as just my undying gratitude for supporting my work. Head to laurathomas.substack.com to subscribe now. All right, team. 
Here's my conversation with Dr. Molly Moffat. Hey, Molly, can you start by telling us a little bit about you and the work that you do? Sure, yes. So I'm a GP, although I actually only do one day of general practice at the moment. I have a special interest in learning disability and autism, so I've been working in that field for a few years. And I've recently started working in paediatrics, doing some neurodevelopmental assessments, and I also do some teaching um, for medical students. The reason I'm here is because I do my very best to practice in a weight-inclusive manner. So I'm not worried about fat bodies, but I'm really worried about the way fat bodies are treated, particularly when they're trying to seek healthcare. Yeah, that's what you're here to talk about today. But I feel like we could probably have a whole other conversation about neurodivergence and feeding differences and and all of that stuff. But I will try and rein myself in because, (laughs) yeah, like you said, I really wanted to talk to you about how fat bodies are perceived and how they're treated in medical settings. So I'm wondering if you could kind of take us on a bit of a journey with you. Mm. Can you set the scene for us? You're a medic straight out of training, going into like your GP specialization. At that point, what do you believe to be true about the relationship between weight and health? Okay. So I mean, all of my medical school teaching, all of my junior doctor training and my GP training was absolutely based in this weight normative approach. So the idea that weight was a marker of health and that we should be pursuing weight management for our fat patients. And there was never any discussion around where that came from. So, you know, it was just stated as a fact that obesity, in inverted commas, came with Mm. all of these comorbidities and put people at increased risk of X, Y, and Z. And like I say, I never remember, and I'm really confident it didn't happen, any discussion around where the evidence behind those statements came from. Mm -hmm. And the fact that actually, it was really complex, and that maybe there were some other factors at play that cause that association between body size and certain diseases. Mm. And I also never remember any conversation about weight stigma and the impact that that can have on people's health. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's, there's so much that I could kind of like tease out of what you just said there, but I think the, the sort of headline for me is just how this information was presented to you as complete certainty. I think if I'm kind of reading between the lines or or what I've even learned in my own training, that as weight goes up, the worse the health outcomes, right? Like in this linear sort of fashion, it sounds as though you learned something similar, but the evidence behind that was never really presented or unpacked or challenged in any way. And that's the part that I find most like terrifying because as medics, you should be like, challenging the evidence and not just like swallowing it whole and you know swallowing information whole and and not kind of having any critical thought around it I know I agree and and of course there were things that we critically appraised and we were taught how to critically appraise but the world of obesity was just something that was presented as a fact Mm -hmm. and and I feel so sad that I kind of missed out on all of those years of a greater understanding of how complex it was. Mm-hmm. You also mentioned weight stigma, which we'll we'll come back to in a second. But coming back to this idea of how complex it is, 
So what were some of those messages that you received that oversimplified the relationship between weight and health? You know, I've kind of mentioned this idea that as weight goes up, that that health invariably goes down. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering what other kinds of things that you picked up on that sort of reinforced those ideas? Yeah, I mean, absolutely kind of eat less and move more was something that we spouted. And, you know, when we were kind of practicing role play scenarios, one of the tick boxes was Mm -hmm. give lifestyle advice. Part of that was, you know, absolutely eat less and move more. And, you know, assumptions around a person's lifestyle and diet, again, was very much part of that message Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. people were fat because they didn't exercise and they ate too much. Mm-hmm. And then they also lie to you, right, about how much they've eaten. That's at least oh. that's the th- the thread that we got in nutrition training is yeah. that people who are higher weight, they're almost always lying about their dietary intake. And so yeah. you are already, I mean, think about how problematic that is that you're already going in with the assumption that this person is lying to you about, Absolutely. you know, their lived experience. Like, what does that do from... The perspective of forming any kind of therapeutic relationship to go in with that yeah. understanding and assumption. Yeah, no, I agree entirely. And you know, let's think about when people are presenting to a healthcare setting; they're generally a bit nervous and anxious and feeling quite vulnerable, and they are essentially quite powerless in that situation. Mm-hmm. And then imagine that they're also giving you information and telling you about their lifestyle, and that's being doubted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it's yeah. horrible, isn't it? Yeah, it's really, really messed up when you slow it down and think about it. I'm wondering if there were any particular moments or specific patients that you remember that started to change that understanding a bit for you that kind of threw a kink in that really simple narrative of Mm. weight equals health and calories in equals calories out. And, you know, we just need to go on a diet and then everyone will be thin. Yeah, I mean, my path towards kind of health at every size was quite convoluted. And actually, it began with an interest in lifestyle medicine. So I was feeling oh, quite... yeah, detour into lifestyle medicine. Okay, <laughs> the plot thickens. <laughs> the plot thickens, absolutely. So, you know, I was feeling quite demoralized by the fact I was seeing a lot of chronic disease and that people were not getting any better and they were coming back to see me. And I was giving them lots of medications and, you know, often those medications would come with fairly significant side effects. And so I guess what lifestyle medicine offered me or what I thought it offered me was the opportunity to really get to the bottom of those problems without the need for medication and the kind of idea that prevention was better than cure. And it appealed to me from a holistic perspective. You know, this was an opportunity to kind of see the person as a whole rather than just focus in mm-hmm. on an individual symptom. So I was actually really excited and really motivated. But what I found with time was that, first of all, I became more uncomfortable with the dynamic that was being played out, which was me as this middle class professional who carried a significant amount of privilege telling people how to live their lives. Mm-hmm. That. Mm -hmm. with time felt more icky Mm -hmm. and also that people weren't able to do all the things we were discussing or if they did do uh, follow the advice that I was giving them it wasn't really making them feel any better because hey you know there are these things called social determinants of health which Mm -hmm. actually great you know carry a greater significance than personal behaviors 
Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering for people who maybe aren't familiar with like the world of lifestyle medicine. Okay. Yeah. If you could say a little bit more about that and kind of the type of advice that you were giving people, like when you say lifestyle advice, what exactly does that mean? And I, I understand it's like a whole range of things, but mm. yeah, I'm curious to to hear how you applied that in your practice. So, I mean, it was looking at kind of core areas. Those core areas were sleep, stress management, mm-hmm. nutrition, and exercise. And, you know, within the nutrition arm, I'm really sad to say that weight loss played a part of that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whilst I tried to make that as individualized as possible to the person in front of me, inherently, there is an element of kind of elitism really with mm-hmm. lifestyle advice, mm-hmm. I feel that again, just didn't really quite sit right with me. Mm-hmm. And I actually found myself feeling a bit irritated, if I'm honest, I was feeling irritated that people weren't doing what I was asking. And luckily, I had the insight to acknowledge that, you know, that was a me problem, not a them problem. Mm-hmm. What I realized was that I wasn't really irritated with them. I was just really frustrated that, you know, here was what I thought was this chance to really make people's lives better. And actually, it wasn't having the impact mm-hmm. that I thought it would. It's almost as though, and this is totally my perspective and my, I think, a little bit of prejudice against lifestyle medicine. Yeah. But there is kind of this underlying assumption that people need you to tell them what to do because they don't know. They don't know. Oh, it's it's patronizing. Yeah. And it's like a kind of a knowledge deficit. Absolutely. When most people, they do understand the importance of sleep and they do understand like it's helpful to like move their bodies in some way and to eat some vegetables. Like absolutely. That rings true so much with me. You know, I hear these conversations where people are talking about healthy weight uh, management and, you know, the suggestions are, well, let's teach people how to cook. And I just think, oh, for goodness sake, you know, it's so patronizing to assume that people don't know how to cook mm-hmm. <laughs> and that you're kind of, it's this kind of savior complex that, well, yeah. let's teach them how to cook because they don't know that and therefore their life's going to be okay. They do know how to cook, but what if they've, you know, got three jobs because they need to work three jobs in order to pay the bills? They don't have or what time if to they cook. just don't like because they've got their own cultural background Absolutely. that cook they cook food in in a very different way than yeah, how yeah, yeah. you cook food. Or like there's a whole number there's... of reasons why like that might just not only fall flat, but it could be problematic for some people, you know, especially if they're like, Well, my doctor is telling me I need to do this, but this doesn't really align with either my values or you know mm-hmm. what I'm able to access or have time for or the competing you know messages that I'm getting from within my family or or whatever it might be so yeah. there's a lot of idealization I think that goes on in the lifestyle medicine community and not a deep enough understanding of social determinants of health like you said I think that's the big big part that's missing in lifestyle medicine and the recognition mm. recognition of the social determinants of health, absolutely. And even just like the understanding that even if everybody did eat whatever Rangan Chatterjee is spouting off that we should eat, <laughs> it doesn't mean that our health will all kind of play out along the same lines. So no. we were going through your journey. Yes. Yeah, so I was talking about lifestyle medicine and feeling just a bit uncomfortable with the whole thing. And of course, at that time, I was... 
nurturing a special interest in neurodiversity, kind of recognizing my own neurodivergence and my children's neurodivergence. And so eating disorders were kind of very much on my radar. And so intuitively, I just didn't like the idea of creating any kind of fear or anxiety around food that Mm. just felt wrong. Mm. And, you know, that's what we were doing when we were talking about nutrition. The world of nutrition is also extremely confusing. And it was confusing for me. (laughs) You know, you have all these people giving really compelling arguments as to why their diet is the best and they're able to give you all this evidence that backs up their claims Mm -hmm. but the kind of general theme yes is that we are creating this fear and anxiety around often whole groups of food I mean wow there's so much that we could say even about that like I got a message from a parent the other day was who was like I feel like I need to have a degree in nutrition to feed my child yeah I was just like yeah that's how fucking convoluted we have made nutrition with all the kind of competing expert voices who are shouting about, you know, their diet as being the best diet. And even like among amongst pediatric feeding professionals and and, well, just pediatric, (laughs) should I just invent a new word? Pediatric Uh dietitians and nutritionists, there's, you know, there's a a right and a wrong way. and, And like you say, it really creates a lot of fear and anxiety about messing up and it plays into kind of our fears about not being a good enough parent and yeah it it really like tugs on a lot of different parts of us yeah where did it go from there then once you had this kind of recognition of like well I don't want to be adding fuel to the fire of Mm -hmm. eating disorders disordered eating Mm -hmm. and making food scary for you know I'm thinking about patients of yours that might be neurodivergent where food might already be really scary. Yeah. Where did it go from there? Where it went from there is that I went on maternity leave. (laughs) So (laughs) I went on there. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I went on maternity leave with this kind of feeling of disconnect and that something wasn't right and I needed to do something. And of course, maternity leave provided me with the opportunity to listen to lots of podcasts and (laughs) read lots of things while sat feeding a baby. So that's how I actually stumbled across health at every size. Ah. You know, the kind of the parenting path that I've chosen to take meant that I was already aware of, you know, division of responsibility and intuitive eating and kind of food neutrality and body neutrality. So I was already already aware of those. And, you know, I was um, again, intuitively, the idea of the language that I was using around food and bodies with my children was very important. Mm-hmm. So I think I actually listened to a podcast. I think it might have been the Full Blooms podcast that I listened to. And mm. I think Christy Harrison was being interviewed on that. Oh, yeah. And that was the first time I heard the words kind of anti diet and mm. health at every size. And yeah, when I have a special interest, I really have a special interest. (laughs) So, you know, 158 podcasts later, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, there I was. And, you know, there I was in this state of a combination of so many feelings of kind of frustration, guilt, sadness, Mm. anger, disbelief. Yeah, you know, I kind of have this very strong sense of justice and feel things very deeply and it, it I found it very consuming to begin with, Mm. this feeling that I'd been getting it wrong and 
why are more people not talking about this? Mm -hmm. Why is this not more mainstream? And really, people should be talking about this. And I wanted to tell everybody I knew about this because this is so important. Mm -hmm. I've heard a similar version of, of that story from not just other medical professionals, but also clients of mine mm -hmm. who are like, why, why isn't everyone talking about this? And they want to kind of become these little social justice warriors yeah. and really just like shout it from the rooftops. And, but what I really appreciated Molly there was just you talking about all the complexity of the feelings that came up for you, because I think oftentimes, particularly if you're in the medical profession or any kind of allied health profession, mm -hmm. because you're in that caring profession, your automatic line of thinking is often, wow, I've caused so much harm. Mm -hmm. And and you you feel an immense amount of guilt for continuing to prescribe diets when you're learning that diets don't work. And you think about all the encounters you've had with patients that might have inadvertently increased their experiences of stigma and harm. Yeah. And again, we'll come to talk about that more in a bit. I suppose my point is really that of course, you're going to feel that way. And that doesn't have to be where it ends being kind of mm. stuck with those feelings of guilt. And so hopefully there was also like a glimmer of hope in there. As oh, well. gosh, yes. Well, I'm wondering as well, because it sounds like you were quite disenchanted before you went on maternity leave. So did this feel like, okay, this is something that this is a missing piece of the puzzle for me for my practice going forward? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I have complete conviction about it. And I did at the time and I still have now, you know, mm -hmm. this is absolutely the way I want to practice. And I do have hope. And I do think that in 20 years time, maybe even 10 years time, we are going to change the way we look at weight and weight management. Mm -hmm. Well, weight management, you know, will not be just abolish weight management. Yeah, absolutely. You've used the term health at every size. And I'm wondering if you could just give a brief kind of like explainer of what health at every size is for people who haven't encountered it before or weight inclusive healthcare you know what like whatever feels yeah. more comfortable for you yeah I mean I guess let's talk kind of about weight inclusive uh, the weight inclusive approach which is probably what I feel kind of most comfortable with same yeah so the idea that weight isn't a marker of health and that people of any size deserve good quality, compassionate, equal access to healthcare. That weight loss isn't possible for most people. And that actually trying to achieve weight loss brings with it lots of concerning things like a, you know, a problematic relationship with food, mm -hmm. risk for, for eating disorders and weight cycling so weight going up and down which mm -hmm. again is bad for us along with stress and again stress is not good for us yeah so there's there's a lot to even think about within there but i think that even that first idea is really radical and it shouldn't be right that first mm. idea of like people of all sizes deserve equal access to healthcare and it should all be delivered with compassion and care. And I think most of us, at least those of us who have thin privilege for us, that's more or less a given. Mm -hmm. 
although, you know, you have had plenty of shitty encounters with doctors, but in general, you know, I am treated well. Whereas, and certainly stories I've heard from clients and, you know, fat activists and people online is that that is, and that's, this is what bears out in the evidence as well, is that that is not guaranteed that people of a higher body weight can walk into a GP surgery. Maybe they're seeking care for, I don't know, a sore throat or pain in their hand. And to call back to your earlier point about how you you have to make these like lifestyle recommendations, patients who are of a higher weight, regardless of what they present for, are almost often given a prescription for weight loss. (sighs) Or they might even be handed a a coupon for Slimming World, right? Like the NHS partners with Slimming World to and and some other weight loss companies. But even if that's not what that person came in for, or even if that person said in no uncertain terms, I do not want to talk about weight. That's Mm -hmm. not what I'm here for. I don't Mm -hmm. want to diet. The doctor generally will respect that boundary. Um, Yeah. (laughs) And what's so sad is that I see patients preempting that. So I have patients that come to me who will say, I know I need to lose weight or Mm. I know I'm a bigger girl. You know, it's almost Mm. like because they are so anticipating me saying it and so nervous about that conversation that they Mm -hmm. kind of want to say it. So it's out the way. Yeah. What do you think that's about? Like what, what do you think is going on there? Well, I mean, I think they're feeling vulnerable and anxious. And as I said, they are so used to their doctor saying something about their size that it's almost like they kind of just want to get it out of the way. Mm-hmm. If I mm-hmm. say it, then they won't say it. Yeah, almost like a defense, it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. And it, you know, it's so sad. And how do you approach that with a patient then if they if they start a consultation off? like that i'm i'm th- kind of jumping ahead of myself here a little bit but thinking about you know how from this new perspective of of being a weight inclusive doctor mm. do you approach that conversation and start to kind of you know take them on a, a slight, in a slightly different direction yeah. than than they might have been accustomed to so it's not easy and it's something that i'm still kind of trying to work out And of course, you know, bearing in mind, I have 10 to 15 minutes with these people. Mm. And of course, it's not like they come to me and they say, oh, you know, tell me what you think about my weight or do you Mm -hmm. think I need to lose weight? They come to me with the assumption that I believe they should lose weight. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, usually they will come about something else like, you know, a chest infection or a sore throat and their weight will come up as part of that consultation. Mm. You know, that kind of respectful two-way dialogue is a really important part for me of the weight inclusive approach. And, you know, in the same way that I feel very strongly that uh, a a weight-centric consultation is horrible because it's that kind of didactic, this is what you must do. Similarly, you know, me just telling somebody you don't need to lose weight equally wouldn't sit right with me. Yeah, And of course, I'm very hyper-aware in that scenario of my own thin privilege and how insensitive of, of me it would be to just kind of, you know, dismiss them and say you don't need to worry about your weight because that would be really kind of minimizing their experience and of course Mm. 
they have had to worry about their weight because their size has meant that they have faced many obstacles and horrible things happen to them and discrimination. Um, so I think it's really important to kind of acknowledge that. So what I try and do is to actually apologize and say, I'm so sorry that anybody has made you feel that your body is flawed and needs fixing. Mm. I don't believe that. And I explain my background and I say, you know, I spent the last few years learning a lot about weight science and reflecting. And as a result of that learning, I now don't see weight as a marker of health and I don't recommend weight loss to my patients. And I explain wow. the reasons for that. Oh my God. I feel kind of emotional hearing you say that just because of just how powerful it would be. I mean, for anyone to hear that, who's, you know, had concerns about their weight, but particularly for, for fat folks, Mm-hmm. And, and like, I'm thinking specifically of, of a couple of clients of mine in the past who've just had horrendous experiences with their GP, even when I have preemptively written yeah. to the GP saying, like, this person has a history of disordered eating and we're not pursuing intentional weight loss for these reasons. Here's all this science that you can read to oh, say sure. why this isn't a good idea. And then okay. still had, you know, yeah, just horrendous experiences and so, yeah, just to have a GP who is so compassionate and understanding, first of all, you're signaling that you're a safe person to them. And secondly, you're signaling that you can come and talk to me about this stuff. Like, even if they're not there about their weight, they want to get their antibiotics yeah. for their chest infection <laughs> and just get out of there. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the future, if that comes up, they know that they can come to you and approach you. And it's just... it. It feels like a really powerful thing to me. People do cry, actually. I've had a few people cry when I've said that. <laughs> I'm um, bad, they do. Yeah. I hope that any other GPs listening are frantically taking notes at this point of a little a little spiel that they can say to, to their clients. And, and has that gone on to open up any other conversations with patients or kind of, you say that people get emotional, but what besides that is the response? like I say, emotional that that's not something they've ever heard anybody say before. And I guess kind of relief. I mean, at the same time, you know, I fully recognize that they will have had a lifetime of being told different things. So, you know, it will take a lot of time for them to completely change their thinking. But yeah, people do come back and have come back to speak to me about it. And, you know, normally what I say is, how would you feel about us instead thinking about certain health behaviors and how we can talk about those, but without weight loss being the goal? And I, I give them that that to kind of think about really. And how do you make it so that that doesn't end up feeling like yeah. an earlier lifestyle yeah, medicine I know. conversation? And, and I'm very conscious of that too. And I guess I make sure that I point out that the reason I don't want weight loss to be the goal is because when weight loss does become the goal, actually those behaviours become quite unhealthy. Mm-hmm. As I said, I'm not quite sure I've got it right just yet. I'm constantly trying to think in my head how I can script these things in a way that does mean that people are going to come back to see me to talk about yeah. it because I want to talk to everybody about it and I want them to come back yeah. and see me. Yeah, um, And yeah. like you say, for them to feel safe. Yeah. And I mean, fundamentally, your job is to help people 
care for themselves and and to offer them care. So yeah, you, you also can't be sort of, you can't completely ignore, you know, health promoting behaviors, but I suppose like, at least for me, it's eliciting from the individual what is important to them yes. and what feels doable for them. So yes. it's like really basic Absolutely. motivational interviewing stuff. Yeah. 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 How can we work from where you already are? And again, it speaks to that piece that a lot of times people already know the things that they need to do. And mm-hmm. so it's just supporting them with the changes that they might already want to make or not make and holding space for that as well. That's exactly And offering right. them the medication if that's actually yeah, what yeah, they yeah. need. <laughs> and there being no shame around that, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Wow. It's like a whole new way of doing medicine. So we've talked about a little bit around this concept of weight stigma Mm. because there's a sort of very particular experience of weight stigma that happens in medical settings or we could also use the words anti-fatness to I think better describe weight stigma and yeah just a sort of side note weight stigma tends to be a very like neutered term that is used in academia whereas I think in in critical fat studies and and in um, fat liberation spaces, they're more and more using the word anti-fat bias, which really speaks to mm. what that is. Yeah, can you explain a little bit more what that means and how it plays out in a medical setting and how it is so harmful and damaging for people's health? Yeah, I mean, what we're referring to there is, as you say, the anti-fat bias that um, people who work in healthcare ca- carry. So meaning a preference to uh, thin bodies and kind of prejudice towards fat bodies. And that's experienced by fat people as weight stigma. That's really, really concerning and it can present in many ways, but it's let's give you some examples of what that can look like in a GP surgery. So that can look like a fat person coming to see their GP. And as you said earlier, having every symptom put down to their weight, weight loss being the answer for everything. Mm. It can mean a fat person losing weight and that weight loss being celebrated rather than that weight loss being considered the red flag that it should be and Mm -hmm. being investigated correctly. Mm -hmm. It can look like they're not being the right equipment available. So therefore the necessary examination doesn't take place. The right investigations don't take place. It can look like the treatment options that are available for thin people not being available or accessible to fat people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all of this means that fat folk don't go and see their doctor when they need to. And, you know, I don't need to explain why that is a concern. That is a concern. It means that diagnoses are missed, diagnoses are made late, and it absolutely contributes to stress, mental health, physical health, and health inequity in an already marginalized group of people. Mm -hmm. I find it so concerning. Mm -hmm. When you list it all out like that, it just puts it into perspective how healthcare for fat people is anything but care. It's anything but health. It's, yeah, prejudice and marginalization and, yeah, violence, I think, a lot of times. Yeah. Because it can kind of... I was just thinking of another example of where people have told me that they've had to go for like 
two or three oral glucose tolerance tests in pregnancy because their or their because their doctors have are just baffled that these people aren't couldn't possibly be diabetic can yeah. possibly be diabetic because <laughs> there's there's an assumption i think made about what fat people's health should be absolutely you know i want to caveat this whole conversation by saying that nobody owes anyone health and health is is morally neutral right absolutely yeah but there's a very pervasive idea that fat people cannot also have you know markers that we would traditionally consider to be within normal range or are healthy by virtue of the fact that they're fat but I think what the evidence shows us over and over again when we really dig through it is that independent of your body size you can have markers of health like cardiorespiratory health, low cholesterol, or like within the the healthy range, not have type 2 diabetes, not have high blood pressure. Absolutely. But the, I think the the assumption that I hear from medical colleagues is that that people will invariably have those things if they're a higher weight. Yeah. And you know, when we think about children, I see that that we have a child who, in terms of their kind of metabolic health markers, is healthy. Uh-huh. And yet, because they are a certain weight, that's mm. pathologized and they are mm. treated as if they are a pathology. Whereas actually, there is nothing wrong with them when you look at their blood results and their blood pressure. Yeah, because I, I did want to to ask you a little bit about, about kids, if that's okay. I realize mm. it's a bit of a detour, but I'm I'm curious to hear if you were the parent of that child that you mentioned who might be a higher body weight, but you know, otherwise there's, there's nothing there to worry about. Or even if there is something to worry about, you know, do you have any advice for parents of how to navigate healthcare and, you know, have these approach these conversations with their GP, you know, to say, look, I don't want to focus on their, their weight. What else can we do to support this child? Yeah. I mean, I think that's what you've just said is a, a really good way of framing it. <laughs> I just realized I just answered my own question. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I, I really, really feel for parents in this situation because it must be such a horrible confrontation to be faced with healthcare professionals who are telling you that you need to do something about your child's weight. And yet you have a child in front of you and you're worried about how they feel about their body, how they feel about themselves. And I guess, you know, the sad thing is that many parents do believe what a doctor says to them and so would put their, child, their on, child on a diet, put their child on a diet, which just mm-hmm. horrifies me and breaks my heart of what we're doing to children when we do that. But yeah, I mean, I think as you posed it perfectly, you know, I am happy to talk about health behaviours, but I'm not happy to focus on my child's weight. And the reasons for that are that I don't want my child to develop an eating disorder and my child's relationship with their body and food is really important to me. That's a really brave thing, a really brave oh, thing to have to do as, as a parent. I mean, yeah. I know trying to like stand up to, I remember declining to be weighed mm-hmm. at my booking appointment for the maternity pathway. And the nurse was just so aggressive with me. She was just like, computer says no. And I was like, but I don't have to do this. But I was in such a like fragile state. Of course. Anyway. Of course. Yeah. Trying to 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 push back on a healthcare professional 
when they're not receptive to it. And also like there's some weird stuff there, but like if you decline a test, which is basically what I did decline, yeah, <laughs> they should respect that. And, yeah. and and they didn't. So that's like a whole other thing. But my point is that pushing back on a on a healthcare, an authoritative, Enough. an authoritative healthcare provider is really, really challenging. So I think to step into that space as a parent Ugh. is it's really hard. Really, really hard. Absolutely. I do not underestimate that at all. You know, I recently got told that I shouldn't be breastfeeding my two and a half year old. And, you know, I approach that situation as a doctor with privilege uh-huh. and uh-huh. I found that very difficult. And oh, was it was a healthcare me... professional told you. Yeah. You should... Yeah. What? That it currently wasn't offering any nutritional value. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'm not trying to compare that to how it must feel as a parent of a fat child, but, uh, you know, I understand that, yeah, confronting somebody in a position of authority is extremely, extremely difficult. Mm. And I wish mm. people didn't have to have those conversations. Yeah, well, I hope you told them where to shove it with <laughs> <laughs> with their comments about I eating. pulled down my top and latched it. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Okay, well. Yes, as a still feeding a preschooler, I totally, totally respect your decision to <laughs> to keep feeding. And yes, also if you have any tips for how the fuck to get them <laughs> to a self wean, then please send them to no, me. No, sadly not. No, <laughs> uh, he'll stop one day. I keep telling myself. We were just talking a bit about how anti fatness presents itself in the medical setting and how people are less likely to have their experiences believed. They Mm -hmm. are less likely to be offered the um, follow-up. What's the word? The medical word. I'm struggling to find the medical word, like the assessments and investigations. investigations, Thank you. That they, they might need weight loss is often celebrated when it's a red flag for you know, if it was a thin person, it would be definitely a red flag, but that just doesn't register. There's, I say avoidance kind of in quotation marks, avoidance Mm -hmm. of healthcare and and kind of non-compliance again in inverted commas, because they are such loaded problematic terms Mm -hmm. because they put the blame on the individual instead of on the medical professional who is often perpetrating violence against that person. So yeah, I just want to kind of give that caveat. Yeah. And it can encourage, or it can mean that people die. Like it's, it's often a case of life, life or death because people understandably don't want to go see their GP. There's a really powerful piece. I'm not sure Molly, if you've read it by Mikey Mercedes in Pipe Ranch magazine, where she's talking about not just the intersection of anti-fatness and medical care but also anti-blackness because there's a another layer here when someone is racialized about assumptions made about like their pain threshold and and tolerance and it's a really eye-opening read if you haven't already read it so I'm going to link to that in the show notes just to give people like more yeah kind of deeper understanding Mm -hmm. of some of these issues I'm curious to hear since you've adopted more of a weight inclusive approach, mm. 
if you've had any pushback from your colleagues and if you have, how do you handle that? So actually, I haven't. Not that I know about. Not that anybody has spoken to me about. And actually, Maybe I you're did... just keeping it under your hat because you're just alone in that GP room. You don't have to like deal with other doctors. On I mean, that does help. Absolutely. <laughs> that I do have a lot of autonomy. And yes, I'm in my room and I see my patients. I did do a presentation to my colleagues about weight inclusive care, okay. which I was really nervous about. And isn't that mm. funny? Because, you know, I was thinking about the fact I was far more nervous doing that than I would be doing other presentations. And, and you know, I, these yeah. days do a fair amount of presenting. And I kind of unpicked that a bit. And I thought, let's think about the crux of what I'm saying here. And the crux of what I'm saying here is, you know, the point I made earlier that People of all sizes deserve compassionate, good, equal access to healthcare, mm-hmm. which really I would hope that most yeah, doctors are members on board of with the caring it. profession would be behind. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so the, the the presentation went well. And, you know, people came to speak to me afterwards and said it had, it had kind of made them think and they'd be really interested in knowing a little bit more. So that was positive. I mean, as GPs, the idea that weight loss isn't sustainable is something that we see day in day out Mm. and so I don't think that's too difficult for GPs to get behind. Okay and just to kind of expand on that point a little bit because I know we've we've talked around this idea that diets don't work Mm -hmm. and again I'll link to a piece that I wrote about the diet cycle and and this sort of why diets don't work but just to give like a really quick overview of what the weight science literature tells us is essentially there are, and this is simplifying things, but, and Molly, feel free to jump in and like expand on anything I'm saying, but what happens when we go on a diet is sort of twofold. First of all, so we reduce the amount of food that we're consuming, right? That's the fundamental premise of any diet. They all work the same way, right? Work. Initial, mm-hmm. at least initially. Mm-hmm. So you might initially see a little bit of, of weight loss, but then your body starts responding to that by dialing up your hunger and appetite hormones, because what it's trying to do is defend your genetically determined set point weight, right? This blueprint that we have for, a, I like to think of it as a kind of comfortable zone that our bodies will like prefer to be in because there's usually always some fluctuation within that, right? Like our weight just kind of goes up and down on its own Mm -hmm. through various, you know, stages of life. But overall, it likes to stay within a window, shall we say. If we're trying to push it down below that comfortable window, our body will respond by amping up hunger and appetite hormones to drive up our appetite, to get us up off of our asses to go and find some mm-hmm. food, right? Like food. it's an yeah. evolutionary yeah. <laughs> mechanism. So that's why you kind of end up diving headfirst into a bread basket or, you know, I always say like you find yourself elbow deep in <laughs> a tube of Pringles um, if you're if you're on a diet. Like that, that's what can happen. And it's because there are these biological mechanisms driving mm-hmm. that response. If for some reason you are able to kind of ride that out, you maybe develop some unhealthy 
coping mechanisms to sort of essentially ignore your hunger, then what can happen is that your body has another mechanism to try and make up for that, which is to slow down your metabolism, right? So it can kind of, either you can get more food to defend your set point weight, or all the functions in your body can sort of slow down. It often starts with what are considered non-essential functions like reproduction. So you might notice that you're, if you're menstruating, that your period becomes irregular, your hair might kind of become um, less thick, your nails might get, I mean, your skin might get a bit dull. But then because your body can't sort of say, okay, turn off this system, but leave all the other ones on, You'll notice it kind of like playing out in in other areas. So somewhere that I see it um, kind of play out a lot is digestion, which I think we can all agree is an essential function. But you start to notice, you might notice it as like IBS type symptoms, constipation, bloating, diarrhea, all of these things can be a function of not having enough to eat. So as your metabolism is slowing down, you will obviously get this plateau in weight loss, or your weight might start to increase, or you could have both things happening kind of simultaneously where your metabolism is dialing down. And then at the same time, your hunger hormones are dialing up. So you have what I call the fuck it effect where, you know, it's like the floodgates open (laughs) and you're just raiding the fridge. And and it's kind of funny, but also it's really distressing experience for people sometimes if you don't understand what's going on, which is it's your primal biological urge to eat is kind of overtaking you and you are just trying to meet your needs however you want but it it can feel really chaotic and out of control and oftentimes we label it as like food addiction or comfort eating sometimes or like yeah we pathologize it somehow Mm -hmm. even when Mm -hmm. that's not really what's going on so that was a more of a detour than I wanted to go on but I thought it was important to explain a little bit of the mechanics as to why diets don't work. Did you have anything you wanted to add to that, Molly? No, I think you have summarized that perfectly. My headline would be bodies are very clever. (laughs) Don't underestimate them. Absolutely. Yeah. That is a way better way of putting it. But so medical colleagues, they don't have too much difficulty understand or kind of appreciating that yeah weight loss is not sustainable yeah um so they they see that day to day in their practice so they it's an easy sell to to, yes it's an easy sell exactly when you kind of go back and fill in like some of the stuff that probably should have been taught in medical school but Mm -hmm. for whatever reason wasn't I say probably should have been taught I mean definitely should have been taught in medical school but wasn't what other kinds of like questions or things did you come up against when having these conversations with colleagues so yeah that that, that is an easy sell the, the harder sell is around the idea that well obesity being a thing mm-hmm. and you know it's associated comorbidities and also what is tricky so even after I'd kind of finished the talk and had a conversation about it the conversation turned to but we do need to think about how safe it is to refer somebody with a BMI of over 30 for a knee replacement. So, you know, the kind of idea that the research that is at the core of, you know, our approaches and the, the weight centric approach is full of bias and 
quite frankly, fat phobia. And that's when I start to feel very conspiratorial, which I hate. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. But I think it's a, you know, it's a really important part of the puzzle and people really need to appreciate that, that actually research, you know, I think Fiona Willard described it as a persuasive piece of writing, which I think is a really important way to look at it, because that's what, you know, research really is. And that, you know, people are generally trying to prove a point when they start a piece of research. Mm -hmm. And because we live in this inherently fat phobic society, People are generally trying to prove that fat is bad. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so what you're saying is there, and there's a great paper that explores this. There's a BMJ paper that explores all the underlying assumptions in weight research. All these biases that Molly is describing, they filter through into the research that we get. So it becomes this like circular, like Mm self-fulfilling kind of thing where we are looking for problems with higher weight and worse health outcomes so we find them right like it becomes yes. this yeah very confirmation um, bias exactly that's yeah. that's the right word i was looking for so there, i'll link to a couple of papers that for anyone for like medical students or even nutrition any allied health professionals who are interested in learning more about this because it's a lot to kind of take in and we're i feel like just getting to the the yeah. Tip of the iceberg here. Yeah. And I guess the other point to make about the research as well that people really need to appreciate is that it's, you know, I've said before, but it, it's really complex. And so, you know, let's take the example of post-operative complications of a knee replacement. And by the way, I haven't really done a deep dive on this. So yeah, no, that's yeah, fine. I'm just kind of using it as an example rather than it being something I know a lot about. But, you know, let's imagine that there is an increased association between post-operative complications in somebody with a high BMI after a knee replacement. Is that as simple as a person's fat and therefore they're going to be at risk of post-operative complications? Mm -hmm. Or is it that they are really stressed in a hospital because they know that they're going to be made to feel bad about their body size? Is it that they didn't have the right equipment available to carry out that operation or to, you know, anesthetize that person? Is it that anti-fat bias has played a part in the treatment that they've Mm -hmm. received Mm post-operatively? We really, really need to be digging deeper and looking at the complexities around these kind of headlines that form the part Mm of, yeah, our management. So yeah, what you what you're talking about there is the the sort of potential confounding variables yeah. that don't get measured for no. that help explain the relationship between X and Y. Yeah. But we just we see the X and the Y and we don't see all the this is a terrible analogy, all the other letters, but <laughs> we're looking for cause and effect, but we're not actually looking at all the other complicating factors that might result in that outcome. I think because our like primal monkey brains love simple explanations for things, right? They don't want things to be complicated, but they are way more complicated than, than they first seem. So last thing I want to ask you about is whether you have any advice for medical students or even physicians who are bumping up against anti-fat bias, either in their training or with their colleagues? Well, I guess I really hope there are people (laughs) in the medical professional listening to this who do share our beliefs. And, you know, I'd love to hear from you because 
that solidarity is really important. Mm-hmm. You know, it can feel quite lonely. I guess my advice would be to kind of stick to your guns and hold on to those values and know that you are keeping people safe and mm-hmm. you will mean that people feel able to come and see you who wouldn't otherwise have felt safe coming to see you. And that's really important. And, you know, when I'm doubting myself or feeling a bit uh, exhausted by swimming against the tide, what I tell myself is, well, let's think about the alternative. And the alternative is not something that I can entertain. Yeah. In terms of conversations with colleagues, I mean, podcasts, I'm really find useful as a way of kind of Mm -hmm. signposting people to snippets of information and also talking about yourself. So, you know, people are more receptive if you kind of critique your own bias as opposed to critiquing theirs. Yeah. So get their backs up. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, you know, a conversation like, you know, I'm thinking about a medical student sat in clinic with somebody saying something like, oh, I've been thinking about my own anti-fat bias or I've been thinking about weight stigma and how I might be contributing to that and how that's something I'd really like to address. Mm -hmm. You know, that kind of thing just plants that seed, doesn't it? And Mm -hmm. means that whether they react perfectly in the moment may mean that that person then has a think about it themselves and reflects on it themselves and Mm -hmm. does a bit of reading. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And you can always you know, if they are open to, to reading more, like, like I said, you could, I'll link to some papers that you could share with them doing a journal club around those papers, or like you did Molly, a presentation that can also be ways to open up conversations within a department or, Mm -hmm. you know, a, a university setting or something like that, where you can all be kind of working through some of this stuff together rather than sort of siloed on, on your own. Because I think it can feel really lonely if you're the only little salmon swimming upstream. It's really hard work, isn't it? Really hard work being the pariah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But I'm I'm really grateful for everything that you're doing. And, you know, even if we don't change anyone else's minds, just the fact that you're showing up for your patients the way that you are is is so important. So, yeah, thank you for that work. At the end of every episode, my guest and I share something that they have been snacking on. Uh, It could be anything you like, a show, a podcast, an actual little snack. So what have you been snacking on lately, Molly? So I have a television show that I've been watching that I'm actually able to share. (laughs) I have a very specific criteria when it comes to television shows that I'm willing to watch because I'm such an empath that I can't bear watching anything that involves you know people being treated badly or Mm -hmm. humiliated or murdered you know anything like that no and it also has to be very relatable I can't my brain just cannot you know get into kind of wizardry and magicians and stuff so (laughs) I have been watching couples therapy which is a documentary on BBC iPlayer which films films couples going through therapy and it's like reality tv but without the vacuous like the drama ness yeah <laughs> okay way. yeah and yeah without the drama so i mean there is drama but it's a really kind of measured drama and i just <laughs> love watching the process i love seeing the dynamic and seeing how it all pans out i think the therapist is amazing oh and so these are real these are real therapy yeah. sessions they've not been staged they've not no no it's, oh wow wild it's real. I have no idea how they got that through any kind of ethics, but 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. But Good it's point. but it's it's I mean it sounds interesting. Who doesn't want to listen into other people's therapy sessions? And yeah, like... I mean I didn't watch it thinking, oh gosh, I feel really bad that this person okay. said this on national television. It didn't. It didn't feel like that. It actually felt really you know, okay. therapeutic. Like I did a documentary with BBC a long time ago now, and there was like a clinical psychologist on the support staff team so I figure that there has to be like someone that person who's yeah just like yeah making sure everything is contained and everyone is safe and that like yeah no one is like burying their soul on national tv who is gonna regret that they said those things so that sounds really interesting okay so my snack is sort of I think well really related to what we have been talking about. So the book that I have been reading at the moment is called Sugar Rush, Science, Politics, and the Demonization of Fatness. It's by Karen Throsby, who is a sociologist. And it is a bit more on the academic side, Mm -hmm. but it is so fascinating. Basically, what she's done is a content analysis of like 500 odd different newspaper articles and books from about, I think, just before the implementation of the sugar tax, or maybe when the sugar tax was being debated, Mm -hmm. all the way through to like 2020, with Boris Johnson's latest round of anti-obesity policy. Yeah, She's just tracing kind of like the history of the sugar tax and the way that the media talks about it and some like key anti-sugar figures and some of the like the rhetoric around sugar and how it has been kind of like socially constructed and it's also linking it to the the demonization of fatness as Mm -hmm. yeah the subtitle suggests Mm -hmm. but what I found really interesting is just how she talks a lot about these ideas that are written into policy documents that are so kind of assertive and confident and definitive uh-huh. that are the similar things that you and I have been talking about in this podcast about the relationship between weight and health that are just in all of these policy documents are just like like given at face value and there's no further sort of exploration of the science and I'm only kind of the first couple of chapters but I'm really enjoying it it's it's Ah. really good it appeals to my like super nerdy nutrition brain where I like want to understand like the trajectory of all of these policies and how they like all kind of interlink and build on one another and it also has a fair amount of Jamie Oliver bashing so I'm here for that (laughs) <laughs> so yeah, Sugar Rush by Karen Throsby. So I will link to Couples Therapy. Is that the name of your show? Couples yeah. Therapy, yes. Couples Therapy and iPlayer and Sugar Rush in the show notes. All right, Molly, before I let you go, can you let everyone know where they can find out more about you and your work? So I am on Instagram as GP, and similarly on Facebook as GP. Be great to see you there. All right. I will link to both of those in the show notes so people can come find you and yeah, let us know what you think of this episode. And thank you so much again for your work, Molly. It was really good to talk to you. Oh, thank you.
Thanks so much for listening to the Can I Have Another Snack podcast. You can support the show by subscribing in your podcast player and leaving a rating and review. And if you want to support the show further and get full access to the Can I Have Another Snack universe, you can become a paid subscriber. It's just £5 a month or £50 for the year, as well as getting tons of cool perks. You help make this work sustainable and we couldn't do it without the support of paying subscribers. Head to laurathomas.substack.com to learn more and sign up today. Can I Have Another Snack is hosted by me, Laura Thomas. Our sound engineer is Lucy Dearlove. Fiona Bray formats and schedules all of our posts and makes sure that they're out on time every week. Our funky artwork is by Caitlin Pracer and the music is by Jason Barkhouse. Thanks so much for listening. Can I have another snack? <laughs> Hehehehe <laughs>